Christmas has come early this year. I am not only with the infamous Chris Albin, but I convinced Neil Lathea to join us today. I'm wearing my famous uh, Christmas sweater. It might be a little early to do that, but we are in December now. So this is another edition of the ML Ops Community Coffee Sessions podcast. Stoked to talk with you both and... I think I want to start it off, Chris, with a question that we sourced from the social networks. And Skylar was asking, how do you find the time to do all of the stuff you do, which is have a family and be present in the family? I imagine that's priority. <laughs> and then <laughs> run the Wikipedia team and all of that good ML stuff that goes on there. Um, write, which I've been finding a lot of value in recently and just love what you are writing. And then on top of that, shit post on Twitter whenever you feel like it. Uh -huh. Where do you uh -huh. come up with all this time? Do you sleep? Yeah, no, I sleep. I think, I, I'll say this. I think one of the reasons that got me interested to going into data science and then more on the ML space was that it was the same reason I like to go, like I, I really wanted to get a PhD. It wasn't because the PhD was fun, because it really wasn't fun. It was because the, there was like infinite stuff to look at. And for whatever reason, my brain is hardwired to like want to do the next thing, right? Like, oh, I can read that. And then that reads this. And that means to go that. And then I, you know, and I'm just like constantly grinding. And so to me, I, I, to me, it's just because I'm, I I have some weird fixation of just wanting to do the next thing. I like I don't I don't have lots of side things. Like I ride my bike, but that's it. I don't I don't paint. I don't have a garden. Like I don't have anything else. And those are like I'm not like I'm not like you gotta hustle and grind. Like I'm not saying those aren't like great things. Those are awesome things. Um, I my brain doesn't just doesn't work like that. Um, to my detriment, right? Like I I think uh, I think lots of people are like amazing cooks and all that kind of stuff. I want to read the next article, the article makes me think about something. So I write something or I make a flashcard or I, you know, write some code and then, then, so, then it leads me to something else. And then all of a sudden it's 2am and then I get up and wake up and do the whole thing again. And, uh, it just means that I, uh, probably produce more than I probably should. Like I probably should save all this for some kind of like, you know, like remove noise out of everyone else's feed. But in fact, instead I'm just constantly on all the time. That's awesome. I'm an avid follower as well. I'm, I'm sure the folks in the MLF community would want to hear about ML at, at uh, Wikimedia and what, what's it like. So should we start with the snapshot of, of your team, uh, what you do, where you fit into the big picture, uh, how you interact with other teams? What would you like to tell us on that front? Sure. Um, so one of the nice things about the Wikimedia Foundation is that because we are all founded, like funded by people like all of you, um, like literally my salary is because people give $20, $15, $5, $2. Like that is actually how I'm paid. There's no like secret other money source somewhere else. Um, we believe that everything that we do should be accessible to people. And one, I think there would be an interesting conversation about how actually incredibly difficult that is when it comes to like infrastructure. But for us, it means that we are, and this is probably the most amazing thing about going to work at the foundation, we are probably, we are like a top five web property, like a website, group of websites, whatever you want to call it. But we are all open. You can see everything about what we do. You can see every server. You can see all of our analytics. Like when our servers go down, you can look at the analytics that I'm looking at to fix the server. You can see our team's internal chat where we are discussing and debating and crying about the server being down. You can look at our like actual, we use Fabricator, which is like an open source version of Jira, but like you can look at our equivalent of Jira tickets while like we are going through the issue of like how to fix the server. And because of all that is open, it means that it's one of the rare cases where, where it's true. Like I've worked at other places that were just, you just had to be really quiet about it. So like when it comes to the, you know, the team structure, um, my team, which is called the machine learning team, um, we are responsible for all the models that are hosted by the Wikimedia Foundation. Um, and so there's one separation to probably make is that the community has been using uh, AI and ML, whatever you want to call it, for much longer than the foundation, probably like twice as long as the foundation. They've been using it for like maybe like 12 years and we've been using it for like six or seven years or something like that. And we 
the foundation doesn't control the community, right? Wikipedia is owned by the community. We are sort of like its biggest fans. We're the supporters of it. We're making the servers run and that kind of stuff. But we do host models for ourselves. And my team, which is a split between machine learning engineers and SREs, site reliability engineers, we are the ones that are responsible for maintaining every single one of the models that are run by the foundation. I think the next question you're going to ask is like, well, what models does Wikipedia run? Which is seems exactly to be that. Yep. Look at this. I can, I can, I can be my own host. <laughs> is, All right, bye. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the models we do a bunch of different models at uh, at the foundation. We do things that mostly help editors. That's our big um, our big task. For example, we predict the quality of any kind of article. The idea is that editors can come in and see articles that we think, based on community-trained data, are really high quality. Maybe they're ones that are sort of low. Maybe they're sort of ones in the middle, which means that the community can actually see what it thinks articles would be. Uh, we also do things like we predict whether or not every single edit is what we call productive or not, or damaging or not. And so we're actually like taking a look at all the different edits and flagging them for editors that that the the model thinks, well, this is, you know, like is this is this spam? Is this like some kind of vandalism? Is this kind of like just you know, a new editor's attempt to like like make a change, but they're not really making it that well. And the idea is to direct editor attention towards those. Um, but not make edits themselves. So we don't change Wikipedia. This is sort of a key, a key, uh, a key point is that we are not editing Wikipedia. We are actually just informing editors and, and saying, hey, there's this interesting thing. But the stuff that I'm really interested in is the stuff that we're starting to move into now. So for example, on Arabic Wikipedia and a few other sites, we're demoing this feature, which we call Adalink. In Adalink, as you can imagine, taking it one step back, as you can imagine, when Wikipedia was started, everyone sort of had a laptop who was editing it, right? So the, the UI is really sort of assumes that you have a laptop. And now as we go into the era of, of having Wikipedias um, in communities that aren't laptop-centric and having people who just, you know, even, even in places where everyone owns a laptop, they're not actually surfing on their laptop, they're surfing on their phone. How do you make it that people can engage with Wikipedia and edit Wikipedia on the phone? And one of the ideas that came up from the product team was the idea of recommending what we think would be links between articles to new editors. And it does two things. One, it means that new editors can come and sort of see uh, edits that they could make that would probably not be reverted by other staff. Because we were saying like, hey, you know, this is probably <laughs> this is probably like an easy edit to make. And then they look at their phone and it says, you know, we think that this article, this word aluminum links to the article about aluminum, you know, yes or no, do you agree? And if they click yes, then their, their account makes that edit. And so they get marked as that edit and they can discuss that edit with other editors and that kind of stuff. And if they say no, we, you know, it just goes away. But the other thing is you can do it on your mobile device, which is really the key part because there's no way <laughs> the future of the future of Wikipedia is everyone has more laptops around the world, right? The future is clearly that people have mobile devices and using, using ML to make it easier for people to get started on Wikipedia using the mobile devices is sort of like a really interesting first step when it comes to, you know, it means you could literally sit at a bus stop and like just sit on your phone and click and click and click and you're editing Wikipedia, right? Um, in a way that sort of fits with the natural workflow. That's the stuff I'm really interested. There's a lot of things along those lines, but it is about assisting people who are trying to edit Wikipedia to do it in a way that they are the ones who are actually making the edit, but we're, we can suggest things, we can provide them a little bit more context, we can sort of like nudge them in a direction that we think would probably be e like the the thing that a new editor could do to not have their their edit reverted. We could suggest, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but we're at the end of the day, we're not editing Wikipedia because the foundation doesn't own Wikipedia. So, so we, can't, nice. we, we, can't, yeah. we can't edit it. So you mentioned uh, machine learning engineers and SREs as well. So where does, in, in, in the spectrum of ML systems, all the way from idea to uh, person on their mobile phone, accepting those recommendations, where, where does your team sit in? Are you also covering the, the model training lifecycle uh, or just the inference side? How does it all fit together? You also mentioned yeah. product teams as well. 
I'm so glad you asked that. That was exactly what I wanted to ask. Thank you for reading my mind right there. Yeah, so the typical workflow that we are really striving towards is that the say the product teams, so there's lots of different product teams, you know, one's working on new, making new editors' lives better, one's working on like new readers and those kind of things. But say a someone on one of those product teams has the idea after talking to community members that we should have an add a link model, right? We should just just new links to the to the viewer. Um, they would put together a team that would have like designers and translation folks and community relation folks and you know to figure out what feature they wanted to do. And if that involved ML, my team would become involved and the researchers would become involved. So we have a really, really, really strong research team at the foundation. And oftentimes they are used for the most difficult questions. <laughs> so my team's more engineering focused. So we we have and do train models all the time. But like the really, really gnarly tasks, right? The ones of like, hey, can we extract knowledge out of all the text from every single article? Like, who knows if that's possible? Let's like, let's try it because it'd be, it'd be really interesting if that was possible. Those tend to go to the research team. Um, but we are always there as, as sort of the, the partner with the research team. Like that's the model we're really, we're really pushing towards is that when a researcher is, when a researcher is working on something, how it's done traditionally at the foundation has been that the researcher would like spend months figuring out how a model and the end point of that would be like a Jupyter notebook. And then they've like handed it off to the engineers who have to like figure out where on our infrastructure to deploy this thing, where we're moving. And this is like the big change that we're trying to make is that because my team's more and more new, it's sort of like sort of two years old, we're moving to the part where my team would be involved right at the start. And my goal and my stated goal for my team and my stated goal for like all the people that we work with is like the first second that you have a model, whether the model literally is just a baseline that returns true, I want to deploy it to production. Like I want to deploy it to production right away because I want to show, I want to make sure that we know it's in production. I know to make sure that it works. I don't want the handoff between my team or the researchers and my team to be a big deal. I want it to be like, actually we've, we've done this thing you know, we've actually deployed it 70 times before the actual handoff between the research team and my team. And that would, the other benefit is that, you know, I am a big fan. I'm a big fan. I know Agile has like a lot of stuff. I'm a big fan of the core idea of Agile, which is like make a workflow all the way through, right? If you're making, you know, like this is the basic concept of MVP. If you have a food delivery startup, don't sign up 12,000 drivers and then build your infrastructure and then sign up the restaurants, sign up one restaurant, you be the driver and have a bad website and just like have that full workflow of someone ordering something. And then you can add more drivers and then you can add more features. And for us, it's the idea with like new products and services. So what we want to do is make it that that even with the worst possible model, the first attempt to model, we have that whole work through that's deployed to our system. It's live, it goes to the public API endpoint, we have some documentation on it, and then we can add more documentation. We can make the model better. We can you know, make it scale more, we can make it run faster, which is obviously a mm -hmm. huge issue. But we can do that with that model, like baseline, it works, it's live, let's try to improve it, as opposed to here's a Jupyter notebook. I have not consulted you on anything to do with that Jupyter notebook. Let's yeah. try to make it run live, which is always like a very, very, it, it's a difficult, it's a difficult task, right? It's, it's just a gnarly task. It's, it involves like the research, because then you have to go back to the researcher and you're like, well, could you use this library instead of this one? Because we support that. It's just like, it's a difficult handoff. And so that change um, is, is really like that end goal that we want to go through. Right now we're sort of working on the backlog of models that have been like put up in the various places in the foundation and actually moving them to our infrastructure. But to me, that agile workflow is is the most important, probably, um, change in how we work with other teams, which I think is super important. Yeah, this was a bit of a selfish question on my part, I guess, because my team's currently going through a different transformation whereby now, instead of, um, uh, well, we send people out into other teams, right? So if there's a product oh, yeah. team that, want, that wants to ship ML, we put an ML person into that team um, and so it's sort of at this intersection of, of uh, workflow and technology, uh, ensuring that like the way you ship ML across the org is, is uniform. Um, and then people and skills and, you know, problem sets and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's super interesting to hear. Um, 
maybe I was going to head into the technology landscape next, but uh, Demetrius, I think you had a question coming up. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about, because I've heard a few different guests talk about this transition where they're really trying to make sure that the the development of models is done in a very holistic way as opposed to these parts that try and get pieced together and Frankenstein together. And one thing that I like asking guests is how do you make sure that you can create a process that is repeatable in that? And when you have the different engineers who have the know-how, how do you get that on paper some way or make it so that it's not only that one engineer who knows how to do that and it's the team or the company that can do that? Yeah, that is actually one of the hardest parts because I suspect Neil's case and frankly my case too, like the downside is is you know what people have called like the bus factor. Like if your engineer was hit by a bus, turns out they're the only person who knows that thing and so then you have to like decide you know hopefully they're not hit by a bus hopefully they like had a kid and now they're doing it but like you know it's called the bus factor um and so what do you do in that in that scenario it is a problem that is because the easiest way to solve that problem would be like well you know what i'm you know i'll do i'll just have two engineers for every single project but then of course you need twice as much staff members right <laughs> like and then what people wonder why don't you do twice as much work because you have twice as much staff instead of you're like you know you're you're double teaming everything um the reason that we wanted to do it this way and the the benefit when it comes to like this repeatability is actually to rigidly enforce it in the infrastructure because the infrastructure is the thing that doesn't change. So in order to deploy something, you have to go through these steps. You are like, there is no skipping steps. There is no, um, there's no sort of like special case around things. And where, where, you know, I think where I, I might differ with Neil in this, in this, this structure is that I worry about having staff on other teams that they become sort of a, like alone, right? And they develop their own habits and they, you know, like you don't know, you don't have that cross sharing. And I don't I, like, I, I'm not, I have done that the other way before. I'm not like, this is a better way. I'm saying like, there's these costs and benefits. So like, do I have the person really embedded with that other team, but they are a little bit more alone than like when mm. it comes to some kind of issue, or do I have a task go to the whole team? But then of course, <laughs> you run into the opposite problem that you're like not actually as close as you might want to one of the product teams. I don't have a, a super great answer to that, right? Because you all you're doing is playing off trade-offs. The best thing that I have come up with is having rigidly imposed, like rigidly enforced policies. Um, normally, ideally, enforced via code. So if you want to deploy, you need to pass these tests. Passing these tests requires that you're structuring everything in a certain way. Therefore, you can care less about like the individual nuances of a particular engineer because they are passing those individual tests. There's a lot of nuance in there with that because I mean, for example, if someone uses a library, you know, uses a library that isn't supported by Kubeflow, you can create a custom server to to support that individual library. But then of course like that opens a can of worms down the line because they might they might do a common library or they might do like a really weird library, but it still works because you can create a custom service for it and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then the next person comes wrong and needs to fix something and it's like, you know, what is ML, you know, like ML Coolio 234 like app? Like, what is this library? I've never heard of this before. Um, you know, what do I what do I do with that? And it is it is one of those issues where like I, to me the best thing you could do is just impose it with code, but that's not a perfect solution. There's literally no perfect solution for this. Yeah, I think there's an element of team size here, probably. Um, how big, more or less, is your team? We are six people. Six people. Yeah. So I I, I definitely echo the sentiment of not wanting to leave people by themselves, <laughs> um, and. Yeah, so I definitely centralized my team when it was small. Now that it's uh, just over six is where we're starting to fan out a little bit. Um, I think the best analogy that I've come up with is that if I look at peers in engineering in really large orgs, like you can have engineers in, you know, thousand plus person companies and they're all shipping code in the same way. 
And so they can focus on what is the like business logic of their particular team or unit or department or whatever words you're using to describe the org. And in ML, ideally we should reach a similar state, right? Where like the way you ship ML in the org is the same regardless, uh, or the, the systems that use feature stores, model registries and all that jazz. Um, and so that then the ML folks can like come together around the systems, but then also then solve specific problems in their own areas. I was just going to mention, Chris, I think I have heard of that ML Coolio framework. It was big in the 90s. <laughs> I was trying to think of a word. On for, yeah, what kind of uh, framework? It was popular you know. back in the gangster's paradise days. And so anyway, we wanted to jump into the next topic, which it goes around the workflow and hardware. And I know people love to talk about tooling around here. We also really try and shine a light on the fact that MLOps is very much a cultural thing, just as much as a tooling thing. But it's interesting for us, like what kind of tools are you using at Wikimedia? I imagine you're heavily using open source stuff. What does it we look like? We only use open source. Only open that source. Is, that is is that like a, a rule from the beginning? Yeah. So the foundation very rarely uses things that are open source. Things do get used. So for example, like your HR software, you know, like there is no open source HR software that you <laughs> that you want to use. I mean, maybe there is, but I've never heard about it. So we do use, and because it's a big organization, there are lots of cases of like like of particular non open source being used. But for any kind of stuff on the infrastructure, the first and foremost thing is open source, and it's because that the foundation believes that as someone who believes in open knowledge, we should be, you know, spending the money that we get from, you know, like from donors to support projects that are that are open source, like our, they're sort of our partners um, in this. So when it comes to things on the ML infrastructure, our requirement, and th this is a this is a message to all of the uh, vendors who email me every single week, if it is not open source, I will almost certainly not approve the purchase. Um, it has to be, it has to be open source. Um, because as a foundation, like we are open and that leads you down to some interesting paths. So for example, uh, the most popular, you know, GPU that you get, you know, NVIDIA, right? Like that's, that's really, that's really like, you know, the, the standard, their support for open source is significantly worse than AMD. So we focus on AMD GPUs, which is a, adds a interesting can of worms because for example, the documentation around connecting a GPU to Kubeflow, which is the open source model management library that we're what we're using, is great for NVIDIA. <laughs> for AMD, there's just like a little tab that's like other, you know, like, like there's really not, there really isn't a lot there. And so it is a problem that that, you know, we we work to solve and you know, we give credit to the our engineers. Like, if an engineer on our team goes and like actually submits, you know, PRs, places, and that kind of stuff, we like fully support that, and they can use work time to do that because we believe that though that's the infrastructure that we use. But we almost exclusively use open source, um, except for like you know, like there'll be little things like we use Slack for like conversations. But our main conversations are actually on IRC because it's open source. We just use Slack for like some things that you need to have security around. Um, there's some security stuff and, and that kind of thing, but whenever possible, whenever possible, open source. And so almost everything's open source. Is it, is there, are there more criteria used to evaluate open source uh, ML tools? I guess in light of avoiding the ML Coolio framework that's got <laughs> zero stars on GitHub and hasn't yeah. been committed to since 19. You know, someone's going to create it now. There's going to be some, yeah. some new framework. So I, as an architect of systems, really hate the cutting edge stuff. Um, and I say that as, as, as someone who, uh, uses Kubeflow while it's currently, you know, I think the, the version we're, we're moving to is like 0.7. So like, so I, we're using the, we're using the cutting edge stuff and, you know, ideally, and this has been the case for my whole career. Like I prefer the really, really standard stuff that are, is easy to maintain. It's really well documented. It's really easy to find a consultant to come in to sort of, fix some really gnarly problem that you have that your team struggles to solve. 
the issue that we had is that when we were looking at the various ML open source MLOps frameworks, they were all new, right? Because MLOps is relatively new. And so there isn't one that's been around for 10 years. And we can just, you know, like, oh, this is awesome. It's, you know, everyone knows this one. This is the one to use. And here's all the stuff around it. And so we did a big review of the various types and settled on uh, Kubeflow because the foundation is moving more towards Kubernetes. And so we wanted to try to build up that 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 knowledge around it. I'll say that the, the thing that it, we have to do with the foundation because we 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 work on things that, you know, typically we run our whole stack from, from the bottom. So we don't use AWS, right? Not open source. Um, we actually, you know, have bare metal servers that go into, you know, our, like our racks in the data center. And then we install everything on top of that all the way up to, to how we serve it. And so given that, and given the fact that we use a lot of open source software, we tend to like staff to stay around for a long time. That is a big goal of the foundation is that people stay around for a while because, you know, it, there's a lot of esoteric parts to having our own stack, right? There's a lot of like, there's a lot of things that are, that are, um, that are sort of unique to the foundation because of the way the foundation does stuff. And because we're like, everyone uses this closed source tool to do that. And we're like, no, we use this totally different open source tool. And, uh, you know, and it even goes, literally it goes to our open source nature. So we don't use GitHub. We use Garrett because Garrett is open source. Garrett is a, a less well-known code repository. Um, and now we're actually doing this big migration to self-hosted GitLab. Why? Because it's open source, right? And so like that, it is a fundamental feature of the foundation, but it means that you need staff who are, they just learn everything about the infrastructure. They know all that nuances around it and they, they stay around for a long time, which is sort of like the goal. And you see staff at the foundation tend to stay, like I am almost two years in and I'm like a, a youngin, I'm like a Padawan compared to like a lot of the staff who have been around for like seven years, eight years and that kind of stuff. And that part of it is really really unique to the foundation. And I think, cause when you sort of, I think the thing that people don't realize about it is that when you, Wikipedia is a really, you know, really big website, it scales lots, et cetera, et cetera. And, but when you actually cut it down to like how many people are recharged of like some specific thing, there's, you know, like the tech department we have is 150 people and we're in charge of the whole infrastructure. So then you, when you cut it down and you sort of like remove, you know, like you, you slice it and dice it. It's actually like four or five people are in charge of this critical thing. And they're the only people in the world who know it. And they've been doing it for eight years. And so like, you really hope they stay for longer because they're the ones who know all the nitty gritty details um, and a lot of the community members and a lot of the issues that have come up to the past. And so for us, like the, the, the good part about the open source is that, you know, we are not beholden to any kind of corporate infrastructure. And I'm not like, you know, this isn't some like deep political take. This is the idea that like, if we wanted to, we could just move all of Wikipedia over to a different set of servers in a different country um, in order to protect it from anything. That is the, like the independence yeah. you gain from being able to set your stack up from scratch. The downside is that you need to have staff who really understands a unique infrastructure that is is not something that is sort of plug and play AWS from one thing to another. And I don't mock that because I love AWS when it comes to building stuff because it is so quickly to, you know, you run a food delivery startup and then you move companies to a healthcare startup and then it's like, oh, no, no, it's it's still AWS. I'm just, you know, different applications are running on it um, where Wikipedia is a totally different infrastructure where I think on my first day, they uh, someone from the data center team was like, oh, um, like, what do you want us to do with this memory? And I was like, like what memory? And he's like, oh, the sticks of RAM. Like, do you want me to install them? Because I'm at the data center. And I was like, what sticks of RAM? Like, why is there sticks of RAM? And, and it was the it was the moment that I realized that um, everything at the foundation is actually self-hosted. <laughs> so and so, literally, there are foundation employees in the data center plucking in sticks of RAM. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, are there any things? that you found lacking in the open source tooling, uh, tooling for ML that you ended up building yourself? Or are you primarily trying to find the best open source options and then use all those Lego bricks and put them together? Neil is I would, asking I for definitely. a friend, huh? Neil, <laughs> Neil's got his own Thanks. open source project that he's doing. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later in the yeah. community <laughs> Slack. Come find me. Um, no, I'm interested for two reasons. One. 
I mean, the people who are listening to this uh, podcast, many of them are building open source tooling. Um, and two is just, yes, I, I honestly believe that a lot of open source tools in and of themselves don't uh, often just fit the bill with a company, right? You have a slightly different requirement, you need stuff to work slightly differently. And um, so many times I've seen uh, wrappers built over open source tools to like make them fit uh, into into a company's requirements. Um, so yeah, if, if, you, if you wanted to put out your wish list of open source tools or talk about stuff that you've ended up uh, rolling with your own, what would it be? Yeah, I think for us, I I would love more open source, like the equivalent of of say CUDA for open source. Like I know there there are some takes on it, but I, like my dream would be some really established alternative to having to use CUDA because Nvidia is the the main game in town when it comes to GPUs. And as someone who has to literally purchase right, if I'm using my own infrastructure, I purchase GPUs. In fact, I tried to purchase a GPU. I even got a photo from the data center person trying to fit it into the server and it didn't fit. So they took like a photo from the data center of like the GPU not fitting into the slot. And so I, and because of like, there's all these people buying GPUs, there's not a lot of GPUs around. They have to fit into a specific frame of the, you know, of our, of our chassis in the, in the data center that I would love to use NVIDIA GPUs because uh, they are, you know, the main game in town, there's lots of them. They're really powerful. They're really well known how things are work. They're the default when people are writing documentation for stuff. And as I talked before, like, I don't want to go too far into unknown territory, right? I want to stay where everyone, where there's lots of documentation. There's lots of people to ask questions and that kind of stuff because we're a really small team. But when it comes to having to use open source, when it comes to GPUs, you know, we have to stay within the realm of open source because of our, our, our philosophy. And therefore, we are we have to use NVIDIA, which is, um, you know, a totally reasonable, a totally reasonable system. It's just smaller. It's just a lot smaller of an ecosystem. And it means that when you run things, run things won't run the way it looks like in, say, a demo or a tutorial or something like that because of some nuances between the GPUs. And so... You know, I would love some some really well. I mean, I know there's I know there's attempts to do it out there. I would just love some like super well established one that was like this is the thing you use. It works perfectly fine every time, and it just you know you just substitute CUDA out for it, and then you're you're good to go. I would I would love that. <laughs> I really love that. Um, I don't even know if it's like legally possible, but that would be the thing that I would love. So, everybody out there, take notes, and any of the <laughs> people that try and hit. Chris up on the mm -hmm. weekly basis, the vendors. If you got an open source CUDA that will solve those problems, that is what he will be that's open to hearing, I guess. One, yeah, that's definitely what I'd love to hear. <laughs> one thing that I, I was wondering about is like, do you all have a separate platform, like a separate data platform for running the analytics workloads as opposed to the machine learning stuff? Yeah, so the foundation has what we call the uh, analytics VLAN, so the virtual virtual LAN, where the data that the foundation keeps sits. And that is not accessible to um, the open internet. And the idea is, you know, for security reasons, basically, like you're, you're hard fencing around, around the thing that you want to keep secure. And one of the interesting things about the infrastructure that we're moving towards and we're building towards it was to overcome the idea that we needed to train models inside of that analytics network, right? We needed to have, we needed, like it's, it says analytics, but really it's just like the data lake. We needed to train models inside of that because they needed to access to all the different features and that kind of stuff. But we needed to serve it outside of it. And so that led to the architecture being like two Kubernetes clusters, one being inside, one being outside, and then a little pass through between, which wouldn't pass data, but would pass models. Um, and that part of it is becomes more complicated when you end up having to do stuff like pre-processing. So if, say, you have, you know, you want a cache of pre-processed data. So to give a real example, someone wants the, you know, someone wants the article quality of article 24, right? Whatever. Um, we They would give us the article ID 24 in this case. Um, that's not how article IDs work, but you get the idea. 
Then we'd go grab the text from that article, right? And then pre-process it as like sort of a transformer first step and then serve it to the model. Well, if that, if that pre-processing isn't actually the text of the model, but actually some kind of piece of private information that we have on, like inside the analytics VLAN, then the production server needs to connect, go back into the analytics VLAN. How would that work? And then leads to uh, complications and headaches all, all around. But there, for us, it is a, like a fundamental feature of the infrastructure to have that, that data link part. And I think where we have... I, I think where we've actually failed in the past that I would really like to improve is that our analytics, and um, you can see all of our analytics, are really focused on keeping the system up and less focused on like uses. Like for, so we don't have, we're moving to it, which I'm really excited about. But right now you can hit our API endpoint without having any login. You literally just hit, hit the rest URL, you get a prediction back. And that's awesome. And it's great, except for the fact that people can then not be rate limited. <laughs> and and then if you want to change something or deprecate something, there's no way to actually contact all the people who are using it. You don't see what people are using it for because you don't, you don't, it's you could just hit the URL and that, you know, that's how it works. If you change the URL, well now the thing breaks. And so I would love more analytics on how different models are being used. Who are the people who are using them? What's, you know, because I want to talk to them. I want, I want to say, hey, what's your pain point here? Like, what's what's broken? What's working? And most people don't talk to me <laughs> when, when they use it, which is nice. But it's also, I, I want to know. I want to know. I want to make your experience better. I want to, you know, we're deprecating one model and moving over to another. I want to tell you that. <laughs> I don't want to randomly one day the URL breaks for you and you can't get a prediction. I want to tell you that we're deprecating it. And so we have all those analytics that right now it's sort of focused on like keeping the servers up, but like I want to move it to a place where we are actually feeding that back into the that that analytics data like data lake, in order for the fact that the analytics team we're not an analytics team we only do ML, um, but there is a full analytics team and a research team and like a global data team that they can actually go and and take a look at like oh okay these people are using you know this model they're using it for this way this community really loves this model this community has actually never used this model so we should ask them do they care or we should turn it off like all that kind of stuff i think we really lack right now and i would love to do more of that i would really i would really love to sort of have that that interface cuz i i fundamentally believe that any kind of ml that we put out even if it's for an internal use case or an external use case, is a product. We are putting out a product that we maintain that we need to treat as a product. And so there is a user experience that comes attached to that product. And it is hard to iterate quickly on the user experience when you don't get to see what people are using it for. Or you only see when people reach out to you, but only a certain biased subset of people reach out to you. And so you're not seeing that complete picture and it's just like not a it's not ideal for that that product iteration approach when it comes to ml that i would i would just love to have you know more analytics yeah i guess you hit on a really interesting question there which is in the grand scheme of these systems where should the data platform end and the ml yeah. platform or the inference platform begin given that they're intrinsically linked uh, in both the models and the data um, so do you have any sort of abstractions along those lines, like a feature store type of thing or batch process that can pull the data out of the data lake into your inference environment? Yeah, so one of the things that we are going to tackle over the next year is building out that data storage part of the infrastructure. So, you know, say model registries, say prediction caches, um, offline and online feature stores and that kind of part. And this is where we're trying to situate it now is actually in between my team and the data engineering team and try to fit where that would go. And it is lucky that half of my team actually came from the data engineering team. And so the SREs of my team originally from the data engineering team. And so they are really, really close to those folks. They have a very strong, very respectful, you know, like, like really good relationship with them. And it, it means that when we start talking about having a shared infrastructure between those two teams, right? You have some things that you want to run on Airflow. We have some things that we want to run on Airflow. Let's like set up some servers and, and that. It's that like 
that's a nice place to put because I'm sure you've run into this case of, well, we're supposed to train models and put it into production, which is great. But then there's a lot of data that's required by the model and produced by the model, right? Like model, like like a bunch of predictions, say pre-processed data. Maybe I pre-process all of Wikipedia and store it in a database. So when I want that, like if a prediction requires some pre-processed data, it's already pre-processed for me. Then it becomes like, oh, now it's a data infrastructure issue. And then like, well, do I need more data, like engineers? Like how does this, how do you do that? And so we're trying to put it in between the two, in between the two teams as sort of like a form of, of shared infrastructure. Um, but that is possible because we have folks on our team who came from the data engineering team and it, there's a strong understanding between like, and you know, shared love between those two teams. But that's, I think that would be much less possible if say that we were really far away from the data engineering team and we're, you know, and, and I think if we were sort of having the strong expectation of like, well, you're not an engineering team, you're a data science team and therefore you shouldn't think so much about engineering and it's like no 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 this is all engineering right <laughs> at a certain scale this is all a big engineering problem because um and this is probably the world's least exciting trope but like the model itself is like one you know it's like is like one teeny teeny part of actually a big infrastructure around like saving the you know saving versions of the model if you're retraining every night the training data the test data the evaluation data how do you put that online we try to make that stuff public so how do you make that stuff public what about prediction caches how do you make it like you know how do you spin up the thing from scratch right so what are your sort of like helm charts that you're using to deploy that thing you know on whatever server how do you have the staging server the development server right like suddenly like very quickly becomes like oh this is an engineering problem <laughs> this is not this is not a like you know, feature engineering problem. This is actually a, a, a relatively um, new, like it's it's old because it's engineering, but it's new because it's like a new engineering structure. Um, yeah, you touched on a bunch of points there in terms of getting models into production. I'm curious about the experimentation aspect of it. Are you running like shadow deployments and A-B tests as well? And is that another component of your infrastructure? If so, or how do you, how do you shape those up in your team? Yeah, that was actually one of the main reasons that we decided to go for Kubeflow because it it has those out of the box, which our current setup, like the setup that we're sort of moving away from, doesn't have that. And it is actually, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in the idea of like, there are no hard problems. There are only like slow iterations, right? Like anything you do all the time, you'll be really good at. And not having the ability to sort of A-B test stuff means it's slow because you try to test something, you know, like with two users over a week and then you see how it goes and then you kind of put it into production and see how it goes. And then you have to like wait for a week to sort of get some results instead of just like constantly testing stuff all the time, even shadow model testing stuff. So like you don't even need to like interrupt, you know, prod, prod looks exactly the same. You're just sort of getting all this data. But that is a, that was a major benefit of adopting a major, you know, the most mature probably MLOps infrastructure as an like open source project of an MLOps infrastructure was to have all that kind of stuff. Because when we looked at replacing our existing infrastructure um, two years ago, the idea of building all that stuff from scratch was like not on, <laughs> not not a viable option, right? And when you adopt open source projects, you're adopting all these, you know, wonderful people who are contributing to it. And for us, you know, we've had these great moments where I've talked about using Kubeflow or had some problem with Kubeflow, and I've talked about it on a live stream or I've talked about it over, you know, like how we, you know, how we discuss things on the team. And Kubeflow contributors have like come out and. You helped out, like come and say, "Oh no, no, I know how this. I know how this works. This is how I fix it." And that's incredibly valuable to us because we are a teeny team with very little resources, and so having that ability to to do that is is huge. I guess the bit that I struggle with with Kubeflow, we talked about GPUs, and it's, it just feels like all of these problems are at such a low level of abstraction compared to what I actually want to be doing, right? Which is training <laughs> ML models and shipping them. So what are your thoughts on, on that view? Because there's like this stack of abstraction that I feel in ML, we're still forced to think about bare metal, even if we're using AWS because, you know, CUDA out of memory. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I feel we're, we're, we're still stuck too far down the abstraction stack overall. 
I we are. I mean, I think we are definitely. I don't know if I've. Well, I would say that we are probably too far down the stack, but I think, I think the, the way it feels like it's going to me as a field, is that, ML ops as like, a type of engineer, is becoming more and more of a thing. So. A regular engineer, as in like, you know, not not a data scientist, not a, you know, AI researcher or something like that, but an engineer um, who is used to problems of serving, serving ML. So all the, you know, all the issues around that, all the data infrastructure issues around that, that becomes a really important layer when you try to do something at scale. Because um, this is probably the same with all of you, but like when I started in in ML, which was a long time ago, you know, I would just like train a super cheapo model using whatever R library I was using at the time, and I'd show it on my laptop, and it'd be 40x better than the manual way they were doing it, and I would look like a you know a wizard, right? But the, of course, the issue with that is that that was 10 years ago. Now they've had 10 years of experience with ML. They've had 40,000 models in production over that time. Like they've dropped a bunch of them, but like over time they've deployed 40,000 times. There's big legacy. There's big mess. It's wrapped up in the infrastructure. It's critical to the business. Okay. Well, in that case, you know, what are, what do you need to, what do you need to do? And I would love for there to be some (laughs) open source third party application where I don't need to care about all that kind of stuff. But I suspect the actual, the actual way it'll trend out is that there is a group of engineers, probably with the title of like MLE, MLSRE, something along those lines, that knows how to do that stuff and they are really valuable and and companies hire them. And like there is, like for us, you know, when I joined, it was really, I had like a blank slate to sort of design the team how I wanted. And I looked around the foundation and it wasn't that there wasn't people who knew how to train ML models. It was that no one knew how to deploy a model. <laughs> and so it was like, okay, cool. This is a place that I can I can fit in and actually enable people. The research team is incredible. They, you know, they're like experts on computer vision and that kind of stuff on the team. And so for us, we do train models, but also the thing that we can do that no one else can do is we can get those models out in production and we can make them live and we can make them stable and we can make them, you know, like any other product that you would want to serve. What's your proudest model? Oh, my proudest model? Yeah. I think this is the interview question I use. So yeah. You're getting it. Yeah. I, so this is, I'll say this, like, I think the proudest things that are the things that like, I really appreciate a lot at the foundation are that we have a lot of models that are trained by the community and it is such a wonderful approach because we, we have a lot of models that are like language specific. So it's like French Wikipedia trains what it thinks article quality is. So we train a model and then serve it back to French Wikipedia. And it means that, at least in my head, that the community has a lot of say in how that models work. Any kind of biases that that community has, any kind of particularities of what it thinks things are, are actually served back towards that community. So the community's in charge. And so if they want to update stuff with new training data, that's possible and that kind of thing. I, I, I think that's really nice. I also think that's really difficult to scale. And so some kind of hybrid approach that's like, here's a global model that predicts article quality, but then also here's like some like specific communities have also created a model just for their community is probably the approach. But for us as a, you know, a community governed, like our board, our board isn't, you know, CEOs, our board is members of the Wikipedia community. That is how the foundation is governed. And therefore, to have models that are trained by the community was really interesting and fun and not what I not what I expected as someone coming from sort of the more corporate, corporate world at that point where it was like, oh, no, I mean, don't worry about individual communities, like cheap scale, cheap scale, fast, yeah. cheap scale, which is, you know, definitely a, a real solution that one should use because um, there are lots of problems with the language specific stuff. But it's cool. It's super interesting. It's like it's small scale which is just nice from a, from a community perspective. Mm. They, have a, they have a say in how, how it works. So someone in the community trains a model and then you put it up for live inference? Is it, did I get that right? So how we work is that we want communities to be able to govern the models that affect them. And so we actually train a lot of the models that put out production. But over the years, the community has trained a lot of the models. <laughs> a lot mm. of the models. I see. I and see. It is a, it is something that we would like to do 
more. I think one of the biggest issues that we've had is that our original MLOps infrastructure, which is called ORS, which started before MLOps is even a thing, written by a researcher, like sort of before the, you know, basically solving his own problem of how to manage these models. It is, it is at this point, like really difficult for other people to use. Um, Cause you'd have to like, if you wanted to train a model that we would put into production using this old infrastructure, you'd actually have to run the whole infrastructure on your laptop. I've discovered it doesn't seem to work on Macs, which is also difficult. Like it is, it is a very, it, I think I, you know, I had an intern try to do it and I had a Google Summer of Code fellow try to replicate our models. And it took both of them two or three weeks to figure out how to do it using that, that infrastructure. And these aren't complicated models. This is a complicated homegrown infrastructure. And so what I would like actually is the, I would like to sort of, and this is our goal with the new infrastructure, that the models that we put out, either we train as a team or the researchers train or community members train, um, they are actually simple and straightforward and put on GitLab and you can look at them and you can sort of see, oh, this is a scikit-learn model that does this and people can contribute to it very easily as an open source project. But for us, you know, the main part is not so much that people train models and we put it out there because as a foundation, we're ethically responsible and sometimes legally responsible for like the models that we host. And for us, it is very important that the community that is impacted by the model has a say in that model, right? And so, for example, if, if I, don't, I don't speak Swahili, but if I trained a model for the Swahili Wikipedia community, I would not allow myself to deploy that model without making sure that the community got a chance to see the model, had a, what we call like a talk period is the thing that we're trying to develop of like the community can actually go and talk about what, you know, the, has a say in that model, has a say whether they want it at all, has a say if we turn it off. And I even, you know, I talked to the beginning for, uh, about the idea of Adalink being demoed for uh, Arabic Wikipedia and a few other wikis. But one of the other wikis was actually German Wikipedia and they asked us to turn it off um, because of the fact that how they deal with links inside articles is different than Arabic Wikipedia. So on Arabic Wikipedia, it is okay. So if you have an article about, you know, I don't know, cast iron stoves or whatever, cast iron pots, and you say link, you know, you see the word banana in there just randomly. It's like, oh, you can also use the cooked bananas. You link to the word banana. In Arabic Wikipedia, that's okay to do. But on German Wikipedia, you're, the, the, the policy is that you only link to articles that um, if they help explain the original article. So like knowing about bananas probably doesn't help you understand cast iron pots. And so you wouldn't add that link. And so, but that is the community governing the model. They're saying like, hey, your model's actually not doing what we want as a community. Um, you know, please don't have it. And the other community is like, no, that's actually within line with how we think it should be done so we could do it. And that part of it is really that, that critical part. So sure, we, we train models, you know, the community trains a lot of models and they, and they put them out. But it is that at the end of the day, it has to be the actual community that is affected by the model. Um, mm. It has to be the one. And a lot of what we are working towards is like, what does it actually look like for a community of people, say Swahili Wikipedia, to actually govern a model that that is created by someone else? So, you know, someone in Cleveland, Ohio in the U.S. trains a model for Swahili Wikipedia and they want us to host it. Well, how do we make sure that Swahili Wikipedians have said yes to this and they think it's a good idea. And, you know, one of the big things that we are working on is model cards, which comes out like the Mitchell et al. paper while they were at Google, around the idea that every single model that we host, and we have a proof of concept of this, we haven't deployed this yet, but we have a proof of concept of it. Every single model that we host should have a, frankly, a Wicca, it's like a media wiki page instead of a Wikipedia page, whatever, like a Wicca page that contains all the information that we have about that model. So why it was created, its latest training score, how it does, you know, here's a link to the code, here's a link to the training data, here's how you should use the model, here's how you shouldn't use the model. And that becomes, because every single Wikipedia page has that little talk page, right? Every single page on Wikipedia has a separate page of where people can talk about that. That becomes the point of discussion for those models. That becomes the place for the community to to talk about it, have consensus around it, discuss whether they want it, voice their concerns, anything like that. But because we are community-driven, it is critical that we don't say, no, we're not going to deploy anything from the community. But then also yeah. that one one random person can't just make, you know, um, the like scary example I was using uh, when we've been talking about this is like the Uyghur editor detector, right? Like imagine someone mm. says, oh, well, I want this thing that I want to apply to like, 
Chinese Wikipedia and we don't like we don't really know what it does. It says, you know, detect article quality or something like that. And so we say that sounds great. And then we deploy it. And what it really does is sort of detect Uyghur editors, like editors of Uyghur descent and that kind of stuff. Like we don't, you know, like we need to make sure that that doesn't happen and it is hosted by us. So it is critically important that we make sure that doesn't happen. How would we put those safeguards in place is a non-trivial problem. It's also not a technical problem. It's sort of more of a, like a community problem, which is one where um, I'm very confident we will solve it, but it is something that like we're, we're getting better in place of like how we end up doing that. Probably a deep rabbit hole of where would you even start by defining community. <laughs> So I, right, I, won't yeah. ask, I won't even ask that as a question. Um, <laughs> no, it's a full, yeah. it's a big, it's a big can of worms. Um, you know, how yeah. many people is a quorum for a community? Yeah. And one thing that I was going to mention there is, I mean, it's so complicated, not just what you're doing with Wikipedia. And like you said, you're sometimes legally responsible for this, but then there are all of the different models that get trained on this open data set. Right. And so how do you look at like these large language models that are coming out of what you have open sourced and how do you think about those things? Yeah, I mean, those those are really interesting. And it is it is one of the, I feel like the unique things about working at the foundation, at least unique for me, is that because we put out so much content, right, in the form of Wikipedia, and because that content is used to train a lot of things, that there is a lot of, there is literally so much research goes on that around ML and Wikipedia that I cannot keep track of all of it. <laughs> and whatever, whatever I propose something, I'm like, oh, it'd be interesting to extract knowledge from individual articles. There's like an article that like did it, you know, like two years ago, someone like, someone did it. And, you know, for, for us, we maintain that one, we don't, we don't control the content of Wikipedia, right? It's not our content. We are the people who support it and host it and make it possible for people to contribute. But it is the community, and it's the community's license, right? Is that, that that matters? It's not it's not our license. And so, when it comes to like how people how people use it, it is important that we allow people to use it in whatever way is governed by the license, right? If you want to use it for some commercial purposes, and that's that's allowed in the license, go ahead, right? If you want to, if you want to do all that, but not credit um, Wikipedia for for it, well, that's actually not that's not okay with the license of certain Wikipedias. Therefore, you you know you shouldn't be able to do that. But it is that freedom to not have to to not dictate how people can use it, which I think has made Wikipedia what it is because it's been used in so many places. There are research that gets done sometimes around large language models, around translation and stuff like that that I. I'm really interested in, um, particularly around, say, say you have a translation model or some kind of knowledge extraction model, and you could suggest that to an editor. So imagine someone is like, imagine, imagine a world where you can extract all the facts from English Wikipedia, which is the largest Wikipedia, and you could actually give those to say Swahili Wikipedia as like a list of facts. So they don't need to do all the research around it. But what they need to do is like write that article, right? So you say like, here's, you know, Here's like someone, someone on English Wikipedia spent 200 hours with this, you know, 40 citation article about something, basketball. Um, and on someone on Swahili Wikipedia could say, okay, cool. I can actually use that work, that research, that time to write an article in my local context, in the way that my community wants, in the way that my community, you know, really feels is necessary. But I can do that using those abstract facts because in fact, you know, who won the you know, a, whatever, who won a particular championship in a particular year is like a, a fact that isn't changing and therefore you can extract it. That stuff is super interesting. There is like a real challenge of translating research into a production system. <laughs> that is what yeah. I've, that is what I've learned from, from this task yeah. is that it is every single time you dig deep into a lot of these articles, not all of them, but a lot of them, how they are doing it is, to accomplish the research task, which is obviously that's what they should be doing. It's a piece of research. But it, if you wanted to do it in a way that would be governed by like, you know, engineering, right? You would have like a really good uptime. It's really, a, it's, it's efficient. It can run a lot, all that kind of stuff. It oftentimes is an incredibly difficult hurdle to solve. And it is one of the reasons why I think people end up 
going to like third party applications for like Google Translate or something like that. Because as an engineer, the problem solved if you put down your credit card, as opposed to, oh, well, we're going to, you know, figure out this, this crafty language translation model, say. Um, but I would like to do more of it. I think if I was really going to adapt some of the things that were coming out from, from the research community in a way to put it in production, I would need a larger team. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I still say that moving to this new infrastructure and making it easier for people to work with us, right? So like I talked about that old infrastructure where everything's sort of done in a way that's very difficult for people to work on it. Instead having instead of on Garrett, right? Put everything on GitLab where people are sort of familiar. It looks exactly like GitHub. It's just like a different URL. Having that code, it's not abstracted away 40 times. You can actually see, you know, model train dot this or whatever. You can actually see the thing. You can see it scikit-learn. Therefore, people can contribute just as they would contribute to any other open source project. The open source project is just the models that we host. That is the vision that I want to get to. That is not the currently how it the current state of things. Um, but it is, it is. It is critical and it's important because one of the things that you learn very quickly at the foundation is that now I'm just going off on a total side tangent, but whatever, um, is that like open source is not accessible. And what you really care about is accessible. You can put out every piece of code. You can put out every version of every data set. You can put out every single note from every single meeting from every single team at the foundation. And to people on the outside, it's all noise and no single signal, and they don't know what to do. Like, where do I actually plug in? Where do I figure out how this works? And instead, what you want to go for is accessible through open source. Open source is a means through to create accessibility. And where we are now with the models is that things are open source, but because they're very difficult to replicate, they are not accessible. And that's where we're trying to push towards making it so it is accessible where someone, you know, say say an undergraduate student could be like, hey, I do want to contribute to this model. Or someone finds something that's wrong with the model, like, oh, this, you know, Vietnamese article quality model is really slow. And I can go to the community and say, hey, what a great task for someone to take on. And someone could like, you know, load it onto their computer really quick and just start figuring a way out. Like how do we how do we make this? How do we make this faster? How do we do that? And increase the number of open source contributions to to um, machine learning at the Wikimedia Foundation by making it actually accessible rather than like strictly over like open source, which I think is not, it's not really the, the, the open source is like a means to the accessibility end, not, not an end to itself. Yeah. It's a beautiful vision. The making the accessibility and just giving more people more at bats is yep. such a great way of doing it because the rising tide is going to lift all boats. Right. I also, I want to point out that I really appreciate that you're doing this model cards. That is so cool. I love that. Uh, And I mean, on one side, it's like, yeah, you should be, in a way, I feel like you're blazing a new path when it comes to like the ethics around models being out there. And I would hope to see that that becomes more standard practice. So... I know why Monzo rejects me from alone, Neil. Uh, I hope you're. Hey. <laughs> it's because you're not in the UK. You need to be in the UK. <laughs> but I, I really think I like. I appreciate that, and that view uh, is something that we need to talk about. Like as engineers, we need to talk about that kind of stuff more. And it's awesome to see. Uh, sadly, this is past like so fast, and <laughs> we got to wrap it up. It's been awesome, though. Chris, Neil, I thank you both for being here. This I got to be a little bit of a fly on the wall and just watch and enjoy here. Uh, this is this was a beautiful session. Thank you both. My annual contribution to Wikimedia is now fully justified. <laughs> <laughs> I got my money's worth and more. Yeah, That's it. Yeah. No, I uh, I appreciate I appreciate the the I don't actually do the fundraising, but I appreciate all donations. <laughs> That's it. Everybody listening, Everyone go, should do it. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> go out there and donate to Wikimedia, Wikipedia. And also, I remember seeing something come through the community a few weeks back, maybe a month back, that your team was hiring. Are you still or did you, find, did you fill yeah, that role? We have one open role for a machine learning engineer. Uh, we'll go. have more, more, more in the future, but this is the, you know, the, the one we have now. Depend, depending um, on how many of you go out and donate, you'll be able to open this up. The, <laughs> this the, you know, it, it's, it's the, it is definitely the, 
the weird part about the foundation that it is like if this was a private company, there would be forty thousand employees, and yeah. instead there's five hundred people who mm-hmm. <laughs> who are who are maintaining you know one of the biggest like infrastructures. I think yeah. um, one of the biggest infrastructures in the world um, because yeah, sure. of the community that's sort of handling all the all the content generation is being handled by the community, and we just get to support that. It's amazing to see. So thank you both. And thanks everybody for listening. If you still are listening and you are on Spotify, give us a follow. If you're on YouTube, give us a like and subscribe, all that fun stuff. Um, I heard on Spotify recently that you can get push notifications when new episodes come out. So depending on how diehard you are uh, about this podcast, you can do that right now. Thanks again, guys. And we'll see y'all later.